I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. This is the word of the Lord. So as I've mentioned a few minutes ago, we're journeying through the book of Philippians this year, uh, this summer, and today's passage, in order to understand it, we need to know something about the historical background. We need to remember the context. The Apostle Paul is writing from prison in Rome. He's a leader in the Christian church, and Christians are being persecuted, so he's writing from prison. And in this passage, in this section, we see him talking about two people, a guy called Timothy and another called Epaphroditus. And basically what you have is Paul saying to the church in Philippi, I want to send Timothy to you eventually. Timothy was Paul's most trusted, closest ministry companion. He was his right-hand man. And Paul's saying, look, I'm in prison. I want to send Timothy to visit with you, to serve you, to minister to you. Can't send him yet, but I want to send him soon. But right now, and then you go down to verse 25, Paul says, I'm going to send back to you Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was part of the church in Philippi. When they heard that Paul was in prison, they sent him as a messenger and sent him to go take care of Paul and to serve Paul and to care for his needs. So what you have in this passage is what sometimes scholars call a travel log. Paul is simply reflecting on his life and his own situation, and he's talking about his friends, and he's saying, these are our travel plans. Timothy's going to come eventually. Epaphroditus is coming right now. But here's what's interesting. Travel logs were very common in ancient letter writing to give updates about travel plans, who's going where. But most of the time, travel logs come at the very end of the letter. It's a kind of way to close the letter. It's in the final greetings. And in this letter, what stands out is Paul's travel log is right smack dab in the middle And not only is it right in the middle, but it's right between some of the meatiest sections of theology in all of the New Testament. So scholars ask the question, why does Paul move this travelogue from the end where we would expect it to the middle where we don't expect it? It almost seems like a diversion or a distraction. And here's the answer. Because it's not just a travelogue. 
What Paul's doing in this passage is he's showing us what theology looks like in action. In chapter one and chapter two of the letter, he's been laying out some of the greatest truths of the Christian faith. And now he's saying, let's see what it looks like in the flesh and blood examples of day-to-day living. He's reflecting on his own situation. He's looking at Timothy. He's looking at Epaphroditus and saying, here is how all this great theology gets lived out in the regular occurrence of your life. There's some really meaty stuff here. Some very practical and important lessons about what it means to follow Jesus. So looking at this passage, this travel log, I want to show you four things today that we can apply to our life. First, the future is the Lord's. Second, discipleship is hard. Third, the best leaders are humble. And fourth, sorrow and joy are often mixed. The future is the Lord's. Discipleship is hard. The best leaders are humble. And sorrow and joy are often mixed. It's all here. Let's take a look. First, the future is the Lord's. Here's a question. How much time do you spend thinking about, even worrying about, your future? For most people, most of the things they worry about are things that haven't happened yet or things that they want to have happen in the future. In a recent survey conducted October of last year, there were a bunch of young people throughout the UK polled and they were asked, how often do you worry about your future? 50% of young people living in the UK said that they felt daily anxiety about their future. We all spend some degrees, some of us, way too much of our energy thinking about, worrying about the future. And the Bible has something to say about this. So think with me. Paul's in prison and he doesn't know what's coming in his life. So whilst in prison, stuck there, he probably can't help but think about his future. Am I going to die in prison? Am I going to be released? Am I ever going to get to visit these churches that I love ever again? Am I ever going to get to be with my friends? Am I ever going to get to eat the kind of food that I like? Or whatever might have been on his mind. So here's Paul in prison. It would have been perfectly natural for him to be asking questions about his future and worried about those questions. But remember, a couple of weeks ago in our sermon, we looked at chapter one and Paul said, I'm confident, absolutely rock solid to the core confident that God who has began a good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. And we said a few weeks ago, what that means in sort of summary Paul says, I know that in a thousand years, I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be in the kingdom. Everything sad will have come untrue and all will be well. And so even if right now things are not looking up for me, I know that's what's coming. And that gives him a kind of buoyancy, a kind of confidence to face life. That's his theology. Jesus is going to return. The kingdom is going to be established. I'm going to be okay. So what does that look like now for Paul in prison making plans about his future? Look at verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon. And then down to verse 24. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. 
Here's Paul in prison. He's saying, look, you guys could benefit from Timothy coming. So I really hope in the Lord that he can get there. And verse 24, I'm in jail. I don't know, but I hope that I can get there too. My confidence is in the Lord. And what do we see? If you believe that your future is safe with God and you apply that doctrine to your life, then what that means is you become a person who can make plans, but rest in the Lord. You can make plans for your future. You can want things and try to achieve things. And then you can rest because you know that everything isn't up to you. Paul says, I hope not in Timothy being able to get to you, but I hope in the Lord. That's where his ultimate confidence was. He says in verse 24, I'd really like to see you all again, but my ultimate confidence is not in my getting released from prison. My ultimate confidence is in the Lord. And he's in charge, not me. He runs my life. I'm not actually in control. And you know what this does? If if this truth gets into the center of your soul, on one hand, it discourages passivity. Some of us just think, well, if God's in control, I'll just wait and just see what happens and it's gonna be great. Long for the ride. The Bible discourages that kind of passivity because it says, look, there's work to be done. Paul's making plans. He knows what the church needs. He's thinking out, this is the best way to advance the mission. He's making plans. This discourages passivity. It invites participation and an active engagement with what God's doing in the world. But on the other hand, it frees Paul from paralysis. Some of you experience decision-making paralysis where you're so afraid of making the wrong decision that you can't make any decision because you think the moment you commit to something, then you're gonna have missed or passed up something better that might come along in the future. And you spend all of your time and you feel completely weighed down by anxiety about your inability to make a decision. The Bible discourages both passivity and paralysis and what it invites is just peace. Make your plans, but rest. Rest in God who's on his throne and no one can unseat him from it. Story is told about 500 years ago, two men, Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon. They were leaders in the church, very significant leaders. They were overseeing a movement, a kind of renewal movement in in Europe and eventually in the world of gospel recovery. And Philip Melanchthon, one of the leaders in this movement, was temperamentally prone to anxiety. He was a guy who just worried a lot. He always saw the worst possible thing that could happen. He was always afraid of it. So one morning he comes down for breakfast and Martin Luther's there and Luther could just see Philip is anxious and he's fearful and is this gonna work and what's gonna happen? He's thinking about the future and Luther comes over to him, puts his hand on his shoulder and says, let Philip cease to rule the world. Let Philip cease to rule the world. That's just applying his theology. God's in control. Make your plans, but rest. Try things out, but trust that God's on his throne. And you know what's interesting about our passage? In verse 19, Paul says, I want to send Timothy. All of our historical records say Timothy eventually got to Philippi. But in verse 24, Paul says, I really hope I can come too. And he never did. Paul died in prison. And it's a good thing that his confidence wasn't in his ability to get to Philippi. It was in the Lord. So make your plans, but rest. James puts it this way, one of the other letters in the New Testament. Now listen, you who say, 
today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Sounds like a lot of people do coming to London, right? Go to that city, make money, move on. He says in verse 14, why do you not even know what will happen today or tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Let Philip cease to rule the world. Make your plans, but rest. It's the first thing we see in the passage. Second thing, discipleship is hard. One of the main thrusts of this passage is Paul's commendation of Timothy and Epaphroditus. It's beautiful to read his descriptions of these people who are ministry partners and friends of Paul's. And he says, I'm going to send both of, you to the, both of them to the church at some point to encourage them. And one of the things that you see in this passage that's true of both Timothy and Epaphroditus is that they had given their entire life over to following Jesus. They surrendered everything to him. And following Jesus was really hard. Discipleship was costly. So look with me in the passage, verse 22. Paul says about Timothy, you know that Timothy has proved himself. That word proved in Greek, it's a very interesting word. It's the same kind of word you would use to describe gold that goes through the fire. You know gold is pure because it's been refined in the fire. And its character, its integrity is purified as it moves through that trial. And that's the kind of word that Paul's using here. You know that Timothy is someone you can trust. You know that Timothy is someone you can look to as a spiritual example because you've seen him go through the fire. And he's trusted in God. His character has been refined. He walked through trials and tribulations and his trust was deep in Jesus. Then you come down to verse 29. He's talking about Epaphroditus. And he says, as Epaphroditus was serving God, he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life. Now we don't know, and we'll talk more about this in just a few minutes. We don't know exactly what kind of illness came upon Epaphroditus, but Paul saying, as he was serving God, something happened that really jeopardized his future. It was difficult and costly to accomplish God's purposes in his life. And yet he stuck with it. He endured. He walked through the challenge and the trial. Now, sometimes people ask me, some of you have asked me, what do you think is the greatest danger facing the church or facing Christians today? And usually people are surprised when I say something like, I think the greatest spiritual danger facing Christians in churches today is apathy and an obsession with comfort and convenience. But friends, make no mistake, we absolutely live in a cultural moment that sees comfort and convenience and ease not just as a luxury, but as an expectation. And in such a culture, we think that if something is hard, it must be bad. And so if God asks me to do something that feels hard for me or that I don't want to do, it must not actually be good for me. We're shaped much more by our culture than we are the way of Jesus. Jen Pollock Michelle, a couple years ago, had an amazing article. You can find it online. It's called Move Over Sex and Drugs, Ease 
is the new vice. And she says in the article, in a technological age like the one that we're in, everything is meant to make our lives easier. And in turn, what happens to us is we're formed to become a people who desire ease and comfort. She puts it this way in her article. One of the most seductive promises of a technological age is that ours should be an unbothered life. As our lives, at least in the developed world, get easier, we are increasingly formed by the desire for ease. Comfort, convenience, apathy, ease, insidious spiritual danger. And friends, can you see how greatly that that does not square with what it means to follow Jesus? Discipleship to Jesus is hard. It's costly. Timothy proved his character walking through the fire, trials, tribulations, all kinds of difficulties. Not just external pressures, but dying to your desires and the impulses of your heart, the things that you want, but you know if you have them, they're going to numb your taste buds to the things of God and saying no to them. Epaphroditus, to follow God, to be about his mission, was risky, it was costly. When Jesus invited people to follow him, he did not say following me is like going on holiday to Cornwall. He said, it's taking up your cross. That's an image that conveys dying. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, interpreting that phrase of Jesus, said, when Jesus calls somebody to follow him, he bids them come and die. Which is a daily denial of self. Of being able to say no to the things that you might want, being able to surrender them so that you can cultivate the life in God, your life of discipleship. So I ask you, is it ever costly for you to follow Jesus? Have you ever said no to something that you wanted, but you knew that that would not help you know God more? So you said no. If following Jesus never feels like dying to self, if it never feels costly, then I can I gently invite you to consider that maybe you're not really following the real Jesus, but you're following one that you've made in your own image. To follow this Jesus is to take up your cross. And that's what we see in the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Jen Pollock Michelle in that same article I referenced puts it this way towards the end. She says, following Christ then, I am radically called to the bother of this material world with all of its attendant burdens and griefs. Discipleship in both its everyday gestures and its grand flourishes is the radical embrace of burden, not the rejection of it. Do you know something about that kind of discipleship? The future is the Lord's. Discipleship is hard. Third, the best leaders are humble. The best leaders are humble. What I love about this passage, what I find very refreshing about this passage, is Timothy and Epaphroditus are presented as really good leaders. I don't know about you, but I'm a little exhausted of all the headlines about bad leaders. Some of you have been part of communities in your job or maybe even in churches where you experienced pain and hurt because of bad leadership. 
Isn't it refreshing for Paul to say, here's two people that I trust who are healthy leaders who you can follow. And even there towards verse 28, 29, you can receive with joy. It's beautiful to see a picture of healthy leadership. But here's the question. How does this apply to us? This idea about healthy leadership. Well, on one hand, Paul's thinking specifically about church leaders. Timothy, Epaphroditus, these are leaders in the church. And so if you're part of a church, you should be asking the question, what are my leaders like? Do they reflect Christ or do they reflect the values of the world? If you're a leader in the church, some of you are. You need to ask yourself, what kind of leader am I like? What do I value? What am I known for? But more than church leadership, I think the principles of this passage can apply to all of us. Because all of you, whether you realize it or not, are leaders in some way. In your job, in your flat, in your family, in your relationships. You have someone or some group of people that looks to you for something. And that's leadership. And so if the question is, what does healthy leadership look like? The answer of the passage, no matter what form of leadership you have, the answer of this passage is the best leaders are humble. They're selfless. Let me show you in the text, verse 20 and 21, Paul says of Timothy, I have no one else like him. Now pause. (laughs) When Paul's talking about church leadership and he says of Timothy, I have nobody else like him. He's a great leader. You're going to love him. We might almost think Paul's going to say, Timothy is such a good preacher, you're going to be riveted when he starts opening his mouth. Or he is such a good counselor, you're just going to love getting coffee with him. He is so good at counseling and applying the God. He's a really good organizer, super administrative. But look at what Paul says. I have, there's nobody I trust as much as Timothy in his leadership quality. Why? Verse 20 and 21. Because he will show genuine concern for your welfare. Everyone looks out for their own interests, but not those of Jesus. The implication being, Timothy is someone who actually cares for the people he's serving. He's humble. Then come down to verse 30. Epaphroditus, he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. In both instances, what marks Timothy and Epaphroditus out for their excellent quality of leadership is that they put other people ahead of themselves in a deep way. And that's humility. We said in our sermon two weeks ago that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's learning to think of yourself less. That's humility. And a humble leader is someone who asks the question, not how can you serve me? but how can I serve you? Humility in leadership looks like giving more than taking. It means sacrifice for the good of others. And of course, Paul says the ultimate example, the most humble, the best leader who's ever existed is who? Jesus Christ. Because in chapter two and verses one through 11, Paul says, look, Jesus, though being very God himself, humbled himself. He took on the form of humanity. He became a human being and he went all the way to the cross and he died for you in your place, which is the most ultimate example of humble leadership. 
looking out for the interests of others ahead of yourself. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And Paul's saying, you can trust Timothy, you can trust Epaphroditus because they've looked to Jesus and their leadership is shaped by him. They're there to serve you, not to take from you. And so here's an application question. In whatever way you're a leader, in your family, at your job, in this church, at a school you're a part of, do you think of yourself as taking from people or there to serve and give to them? Really practical example. Some of you are managers. You have direct reports. You have people that you supervise. When the people under you do a good job, are you finding ways to take credit for their successes and blame them or blame, you know, cast blame on them for your own failures and mistakes? You know, lots of bad leaders do that. I'm going to take credit for what you've done good and I'm going to cast blame for the things that aren't going well. But do you know what a Christ-centered leader does? They find ways to actually cover up and absorb the weaknesses and the shortcomings of the people they lead. And they seek to praise and to celebrate and to empower the successes and the triumphs of the people they're leading. Why would a good leader do that? Because that's what Jesus has done for you. You see, on the cross, Jesus, the ultimate leader, literally absorbed the punishment that you deserved. All of God's holy and good judgment fell down on his shoulders. And on that day when Jesus died on the cross, God was treating him like you deserved. So that on this day, you could be treated as Jesus deserved. That's the ultimate, that's the best kind of leader. That's humility and leadership. And Paul saying Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of people who have been so shaped by the cross that now their own leadership is humble. Their own leadership is marked by the sacrifice of Jesus. The best leaders are humble. Fourth and finally, as we close our sermon today, sorrow and joy are often mixed. I'll be brief here, but let me just show you. We've already talked about how Epaphroditus was ill. The text says he almost died because of how sick he was. We don't know what his illness was. But in the passage, Paul says, look at verse 27. Indeed, Epaphroditus was ill and he almost died. But God had mercy on him and on me also to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Now, it's easy to miss this, but listen to what Paul's saying. Epaphroditus was really sick, but God's mercy, he was healed. He got better. And it's so good that he did because that meant God spared me sorrow upon sorrow. Do you catch that? Paul's saying, if Epaphroditus died, I would have felt sorrow on top of the sorrow that I was already feeling. So the question is, well, what was causing Paul's sorrow? What was his grief? What was making him sad? That Epaphroditus' death would have only increased the answer is we don't know. I mean, there's loads of he's in prison. I mean, anything could have been making him sad. But here's the point. Philippians is one of the most joy-filled letters of the New Testament. Throughout the letter, Paul's talking about joy. He's talking about rejoicing. He's talking about always being rejoicing in God, filled with rejoicing, joy. You're like, chill out, Paul. And then yet here he says, my baseline narrative is sorrow. And I say, wait, hold up a second, Paul. Which is it? 
Is it rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I say rejoice. Or is it sorrow? And what I love about the reality of the Christian faith is it's nuanced enough to know that actually in our lived experience, sorrow and joy are always mixed together. That there's rarely a day of our lives that happens in which we don't feel some measure of sorrow and some measure of joy at the same time. And Paul says, I'm in prison. I look at my life, there's deep sorrow. And yet at the same time, I have an unconquerable joy. And that's why Thomas Watson, the old pastor said, the child of God is someone who learns how to laugh even when there are tears in their eyes. Do you know how to do that? Paul did. In another spot on the New Testament, Paul says, I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Our culture trains us to think it's sorrow or joy. Minimize sorrow, maximize joy. Christianity says it's always sorrow and joy. And somehow we live in that tension. And so Christians are those who can laugh even when there are tears in their eyes. How do you become a person who does that? How do you become a person who can laugh and weep? We're about to come to the Lord's table. We're about to celebrate Jesus' death for us. And that's the ultimate lesson in sorrow and joy. Because on one hand, when you hold the bread and cup in your hand, what does it do? It grieves you. Your sin, what the Bible calls your selfishness or your self-absorption, was so profound that the only way God could address it was by sending his son as your sacrifice. That means all the ways that instead of trusting God with your future, you live trying to control everything. Jesus died for that. And all the ways that you use people instead of serve people, Jesus died for that. You see, when we hold the cup in our hand, we're confronted with the ugliness and the reality of our sin. That cost the son of God his life to pay for it. And that, seeing that should grieve you. There should be deep sorrow. And at the very same time, you hold that bread in your cup and you know what God says? Yeah, your sin was so bad I had to die for you. But you were so loved and I so delight in you, Jesus says, that I was glad to do it. And Jesus goes to the cross according to Hebrews 12, not out of duty, but with delight. And Jesus says, it was for you, my joy, that I endured the cross. That's the tension of Jesus' death. It both humbles you to the ground and it lifts you to the sky. And so today, as you hold the bread and cup in your hand, you have the ultimate lesson in sorrow and joy. The reality and the weight of your sin and the beauty and the love of Jesus' sacrifice. And that lifts us and that gives us an ability to face anything in life, the joys and the sorrows, the highs and the lows, and to be present and say, I'm going to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I'm going to laugh even when there are tears in my eyes. That's what Jesus' death allows us to do because that's what he accomplished on the cross. So let's pray for a deeper experience of that death as we come now to his table. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for teaching us today from the book of Philippians. And as we now come to the table and have our time of response, we ask that you would meet us. We ask that you would challenge us. We ask that you would help us to encounter sorrow and joy.
in a deep way as we look to Jesus who died for us, whose love was revealed on that cross. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. 